Uh, we're going to work through a parable tonight. I know you've probably been through a few that are, you know, parables can be really strange sometimes. Sometimes Jesus tells a story and you think um, he's, he's about to clear everything up. And what you realize is that Jesus like confuses half the people. And so if you've had that experience, maybe even over the course of the semester, um, parables are a good time to kind of dig in and they really make you, they really make you work. They make you kind of work to understand your own heart, right? And so the one we're going to look at tonight is, is one in Luke's gospel. So Luke has a lot of parables. And there's a scene just right before chapter 10 of Luke, where I'm going to be reading from, where Jesus, um, in his ministry, he makes this literal turn, that he turns and he set, Luke says he sets his face upon Jerusalem. And I don't know kind of your background, um, how you grew up, if you grew up in church or what, but I just want you to think for a minute like, about what that means, is that this is the second person of the Trinity who is standing upon the face of the world that he created. And he is entering into a, a scene that is incredibly difficult and dark because the very people he's come to save are going to be the ones who reject him. And Jesus now sets his face on Jerusalem, meaning he is marching toward his death. That he knows exactly why he's here, he knows what he's come to do, and Jesus looks towards Jerusalem and starts going there. And he tells his disciples, hey, when we get there, they're going to beat me up, they're going to hand me over, they're going to spit on me, flog, they're going to flog me, and then they're going to kill me. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. And the disciples have like no idea what he's talking about. And as he starts this march towards Jerusalem, what we find, this is kind of this long narrative in Luke's gospel where people begin to come up to him who think they might know who he is, and they begin to ask him questions. And some of them are trying to stump him. Some of them are trying to test him, as we're going to see tonight. Some of them are, are genuine in their questions, and they really want to know more. And so we're going to join um, in this kind of march towards Jerusalem tonight. We're going to, we're going to watch um, as somebody comes up to Jesus and ask him a very interesting question. This is a, a parable that many of you probably are very familiar with, or if you've at least heard before, if you've heard any of the stories of Jesus, it might be, this might be one of those. This is the parable that's often called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, and we're going to go down to verse 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw 
saw him, he passed him by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. This is God's word. When it, in my church, after we read God's word, we always say the, the word of the Lord, and you would respond, thanks be to God. And we do that because every time, this is God's word. And sometimes we read passages that we're not maybe particularly excited about. And it's always good to say, this is the word of the Lord, and I give thanks for it, right? I give thanks for the passages that I really resonate with and I love, and I, gave, I give thanks for the ones that maybe even are a little bit obscure or confusing to me. So I'm going to pause even as we've given thanks, and I'm going, to, I'm going to pray and ask that he would help us to understand this story. Father, we, um, we do thank you for your word. Your word is, is truth, and we thank you that we have the privilege tonight of gathering in this place on this campus. And hearing your word read, and being able to think about it and talk about it together. Father, we pray that what you would do um, is what your word always does, is that, that it would cut deeply into us, that it, would, that it would go and pierce to our heart, that it would show us more of who we are. And Father, ultimately, that your word would do um, exactly what all of it does, is that it would point us to your son, Jesus. And that what we would, what we would leave here with tonight is not just another thing to do, um, that we would leave here tonight with the freedom that Jesus has come to bring us because it is for freedom that he has set us free. And Father, I pray that he would set us free to be ones who do go and love in the way that we have been loved by you. Father, we can only do this by your spirit. So would your spirit guide us tonight? We ask this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, my family has often told me that I'm a hard person to buy presents for. And I don't really, I, I don't argue with them on this because I, I think I am a hard person. I think when my wife says that, what she means is you're, re you're really picky. That's true, right? Um, I, I, I just, I like to, pr I prefer to say I have really good taste, right? Um, I'm picky, but I think that oftentimes I don't know what it is that I want. Like when you say, well, hey, what do you want for your birthday? Oftentimes I'm like, I, I have no idea. Like I don't know what I need. But a few years ago, uh, I was asked the same question. My birthday was rolling around, and I said, I know exactly what I want. Now, I had been running a lot at the time, and I was thinking, what I, this was kind of, this was a few years back when sort of GPS technology was getting to the point where it was like affordable, or somewhat affordable. And I thought, I want a GPS watch. Like, I want to be able to know how slow I'm going, right? I want to be able to actually like verify that I'm really slow. And so I got what I asked for. I got my GPS watch. Um, it's great. Um, I'm on another iteration of it now. They're wonderful. But one of the things that a GPS watch usually does, or an Apple watch, you know, is that it tracks your movement, right? 
And so this is not something that I was necessarily interested in when I got the watch. I just wanted to turn it on when I ran and turn it off when I was done running. But what I realized is that it's tracking my steps. And I thought, you know what, I'm never going to pay attention to that. But lo and behold, what I realized is that I really like to measure myself. I love to see if I'm doing enough. And so what I realized is that if you hit 10,000 steps on my particular watch at the time, it would like celebrate you. It would be like, you're a really good person. You hit 10,000 steps. What that means, for what I looked up, is that at the time, this changes like every week probably, but the like American Heart Association said, your heart would be more healthy if you walked 10,000 steps. And I was like, great, I want a healthy heart. I'm going to walk 10,000 steps every day. But the problem is, if I didn't run that day, I happen to be a pastor. Like, that's my job. And I don't know if you know a lot of pastors, we don't move a lot during the day, right? It's not like something, it's not a manual labor job. It's like I sit at an office, I sit across from people, I go to lunch, um, and, you know, that's about it. Like, I don't, like, do a lot of active things. I walk from, like, my car to the building to the coffee shop. And so I realized, like, I'm never going to be getting my 10,000 steps. And here's the thing. I like to measure myself. I also don't like to fail. And so I figured out something I could do. I could go in to my watch through the app, and I could lower the number of steps from 10,000 to 5,000. And when I did that, I would hit 5,000 almost every day, and it would give me the same little congratulation praise. And I'm like, I did it. And if you're looking at me like, this guy doesn't understand what it means to have a healthy heart, I don't, right? That would be cheating, right? So I'm adjusting the standard to make it so I can fit it into my life so that I can meet it, so that I can feel good about myself. Now, if you've ever done anything like that before, or if you just like understand that I'm an idiot when I did that, then you understand something of what's going on in this passage. And, the, and this is how I want to look at it tonight, is that this, this lawyer, and I'm going to talk about what that means in a second, this lawyer comes up to Jesus to test him. So I'm going to look at how the lawyer tests Jesus, but then I'm going to look at how Jesus then through this parable test the lawyer, and I think test us. And then I want to see how understanding what Jesus is actually communicating in this parable actually completely changes the way that we relate to God and we relate to our neighbor. And I think we could also say, if, if it changes the way we relate to God and our neighbor, it changes the way we relate to ourselves as well. All right, so how does this, what happens in this, basically what's going on um, in this section that I just read to you? Well, a lawyer stands up to ask Jesus a question. Now, this isn't, this isn't um, a lawyer like we think of a lawyer. This is a biblical law expert, okay? So this is somebody whose like, day job is like studying God's word and trying to get it precisely right. So he is an expert in the law. And Luke says that he wants to test Jesus. I mean, Luke is just really clear about what's going on in this passage. This man is a law expert. What he thinks is that this guy, Jesus, has been going around and doing things that are very bizarre. And he wants to test him to make sure that Jesus actually understands and obeys the law and has a respect and a regard for the law. Why? Because, well, Jesus is doing things like 
looking at somebody, telling them to stand up and saying, like, your sins are forgiven. And that makes a law expert really uneasy. Or he, like, lets his, like, disciples, like, pick some grain on the Sabbath, and they're like, whoa, 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 okay? And so he wants to test Jesus. Do you actually understand? Do you actually respect the law? Do you take the law seriously? Because there's some concerns floating around about this Jesus guy. And so to test him, he asked this question, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Just tell me, what do I got to do, right? I mean, sometimes we feel like asking that question. I mean, this whole religion thing, like, just tell me what to do, right? And I'll try to do it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus turns it back on him, and he basically says this. He basically is like, well, you're the law expert. What does the law say? How do you read it, right? How do you interpret the law? And you tell me how you inherit eternal life. And so Jesus knows that this guy who spends his days studying God's law is not going to recite all of the law back to him. Jesus knows that this man is probably going to give a summary of the law. And Jesus knows what the summary of the law is because you've heard Jesus. He's been asked the same question before. And he knows that the answer to this question is that you shall, as we hear him say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And you see, just think about what Jesus is doing in this moment. It's easy to kind of pass over this and then just jump into the story, the parable. But I think what Jesus is trying to get this guy to do is that he wants this man who studies the law and has just asked the question, what do I have to do in order to live forever? He wants this man to say it out loud that, you, that, that, that the sum and the essence of God's law is love. It is perfect, selfless, continual, never-ending, never-failing love. He just said it. This is what you have to do. Jesus is basically saying, okay, you want to do something to inherit eternal life. I'll, I'll tell it. You just said it basically, but I'll repeat it back to you. All you have to do is you've got to love God with every molecule of your being at every nanosecond for all of your existence. And you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, do that and you'll live, right? You see what he's doing. And so the man, instead of going like, oh, I get it, Luke tells us in order to, he wants to justify himself. In other words, he's saying, man, I study this law all the time, and I've been working so hard to keep it, and I just want to know that I'm doing it right. And so I'm going to ask him this next question in order to justify my, notice he passes over the part about loving God, which is very interesting. I don't know that he, if he thinks like, I got that one, you know, but he goes to the second part and he says, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And who knows what's going through this guy's mind? I mean, maybe he's thinking he's just had some interesting interactions with people. And maybe even he's convicted in his heart where he thinks, I'm not sure that the way I treated this person was good. But I think that like what is underneath this question is this, is that at this time, 
the Jews would have had a very, very narrow and specific definition of who their neighbor was. That they knew that when they said, when they said neighbor, they meant somebody who believed what I believe, who looks like, I look, looks like me, who talks like me, who understands. That's my neighbor. My neighbor is somebody who is like I am. It's somebody who's within my tribe. So to love my neighbor as myself, I think I can do that as long as it's somebody who's within my tribe, right? Surely, it's not, my neighbor's not a Gentile, or as we're going to see in a minute, a Samaritan. And so Jesus, he wants, he wants to hear Jesus affirm his definition of neighbor, because here's what he wants to do. He wants to take those 10,000 steps down to 5,000 steps, right? This is what everyone that Jesus encounters, who is an expert in the law, it seems like in the Gospels, is doing, that they're adding on to the law, that they're twisting the law so that they might make it doable, so that they might be able to justify themselves. And so here's, this is what the lawyer's testing Jesus. Jesus says, oh, that's interesting. That reminds me of a story. And it's like whenever Jesus gets ready to tell a story, it's sort of like, buckle up, right? Because he is about to, like, he is about to unravel everyone in the crowd. And so Jesus now, who is being tested by the lawyer, turns in order to test this law expert by telling this story. And I'm not going to recount the story to you. You've heard it, and you just heard me read it again. But I think that what Jesus is trying to do, and in a lot of the parables you could do this, is that he wants you to think about where you find yourself in this story. So as he's talking to this law expert who's saying, well, who is my neighbor? Because he wants to justify himself. Jesus says, let me tell you this story. And as I'm telling you this story, think about who you are in the story. Who do you, like, who do you resonate most with? And I want, to, I want us to do the same thing for a minute. Because let's think about the different characters in the story. The, some of the first ones in the story that I think it's easy, if you've, if you've read this parable a lot, to just pass over are the lawyers. Nope, that's not what I meant. The robbers. The robbers. Think about the, that there wouldn't be a story without them. Um, but we don't think about them a whole lot. But who are the... Who are these people in this story? Well, there are certain people in the story who see a man traveling down a road, and they don't see somebody who's made in the image of God. They see an opportunity. They see a human being as something that they can take advantage of in order to get what they want, right? He looks like an easy target. He looks like a vulnerable person. He looks like somebody that I can use in order to get what I need. And I know it like stings a little bit to put it this way, but there probably isn't anyone in this room, myself included, who has not done this in some way or another, right? That if you really want to start thinking about who you are in this parable, let's start with the robbers. Um, I don't necessarily mean that you beat somebody up and rob them and strip them naked and left them for dead. If you have done that, come talk to me afterwards. But um, we have all used other people, whether it's emotionally, financially, sexually, that we have not viewed them with dignity, the dignity that God has made them with, 
but we've instead seen them as an object. We've objectified other people so that we can get what we want out of them. We've robbed others of what they actually need to prosper, and we've held back from loving them as we love ourselves. Okay, so for the first, just if, if you just take the first people in the story, you go, we're all guilty, all right? And maybe it's a little bit easier, though, to like kind of resonate and relate to um, the priest and the Levite. These two guys who, who come walking by, and because you're going, I get it, right? They're walking down a road that is notoriously dangerous, a road where there are often, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho is kind of known to be a place where there was, it was easy to hide in the crevices and the cliffs, so that if you're traveling alone, um, you might get robbed, right? And it would be easy to kind of be walking down this road and going, I already feel unsafe, and now I just encountered somebody who's half dead, bleeding, and lying on the side of the road. So just like, think about that image for a minute and go, what would you do? <laughs> um, I think that you would have a lot of reasons to start going like, I'm a priest, and I am going to do important things, or I'm a Levite, and I've got, I've got things that are really good that I need to do. And you go, yeah, I'm, I do this all the time. Like, it's easy to go, I, I walk by somebody who is desperate or who is in need, who I know is hurting, who I know is lonely, and I say, you know what, I've got, I've got a big test tomorrow, and doing my test to God's glory and do the best I can, that's really important, so I'm going to keep going, I'm going to keep moving, I'm going to overlook this person. And I think doing your test to God's glory is important, and you should do good work, that's not what I'm saying, but we can easily start to make excuses to go, I'm going to prioritize what I think is more important so that I pass over somebody who is actually in need. And so it's easy to look at somebody who is maybe especially desperate and to kind of go, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really equipped to help them. Um, or maybe they got themselves, you know, into the situation to begin with. You know, I mean, maybe you're walking past like, like a particularly uh, <laughs> a rowdy party and there's a guy like laying in the grass like half dead and you kind of go, you got yourself into that situation. I'm gone, right? It's easy to do that. Um, we've all been guilty of that. I think we can relate to the priest and the Levite. We've, we've looked out for ourselves and we've cherished our own comfort and our own safety above everything else. We've seen the person in need even in the worst possible light as we look at ourselves in the best possible light. And so we've immediately thought, that's somebody else's job, that's somebody else's responsibility. Now, what about the last man? I think that the last man who comes along would have been really shocking to the original hearers of this parable. Because I think that you think about the order for a minute. You've got a priest, you've got a Levite, you've got a, you've got a Jewish man who's been beat up and robbed and lying on the road. And it would have made sense, I think, to their ears that they would go, okay, I see what he's doing. The next person who's going to come up is just going to be an ordinary Jewish layman. Somebody like a fisherman, somebody like a construction worker, somebody who's not like the religious elite, he's going to be the hero of the story. He's going to be the one who actually understands the law and actually loves his neighbor. And it's kind of going to be a way of jabbing upward at the religious, like, um, upper echelon, right? The, the religious elite. That's what Jesus is trying to do. But that's not what Jesus does at all. Instead, he throws them all for a loop because he says the next guy who comes by 
and has compassion is a Samaritan. And you go, if, if you don't know any biblical history, which I don't assume you should know, you would be like, who cares, right? I don't know what that even means, and I don't know why it's astounding. I was trying to think of, like, what is a, what's an analogy that even gets close to this? Have you guys noticed that in our country right now that politically we're really divided? <laughs> Y'all are like, yeah, uh, uh, lots of blank stares. Okay, it's really bad right now. Okay, so think about it this way. Um, think about, it, it, I'm not making a political statement here, okay? You can switch this around either way you want. Think about the guy on the side of the road. He's this Republican. He got beat up. And then you got a senator, a Republican senator that walks by and he keeps going. And you got a Republican congressman. He's like, I'm going to represent you. You know, it's like I've got important work to do. Don't have time to stop and help you, but I'm going, I'm going, you know, on my way to DC. And then you have a Democrat that stops. Or like I said, reverse it if you want, if that makes you feel more comfortable. I don't care. But that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what's happening in this passage. Because Jews, and I mean, when I say hated, I mean hated Samaritans. They thought Samaritans, they called Samaritans dogs. They said that Samaritans were worse than swine. And you know what Jews think about pork, right? Not something they eat a lot of. To associate with a Samaritan, to get close to a Samaritan, would make you ritually unclean. They were people that had intermarried, and according to the Jews, would be like, you have completely defiled our religion. You're syncretist, right? You've, you've intermarried with pagan religions. You've, you've mixed them together. You're kind of wackos. You worship over on this other mountain that you would go around Samaria, if you could, um, and, and, and avoid going straight through it. Not exactly fans of Samaritans, right? And so when Jesus says to love your neighbor, you would have to go, surely Jesus does not mean one of them. And yet this Samaritan puts his own life in danger, right? I mean, this is, a, like I said, it's a scary situation. Will he be jumped as he goes to help this man? But his question isn't, what's going to happen to me? His question is, what's going to happen to this man if I don't help him? It's an odd way to think because we don't think that way very often. The question isn't, what's going to happen to me? The question is, what will happen to him if I don't help him? So let me just put it to you bluntly, and then we'll kind of make some application here. When Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor, this is how he answers. And what is he saying? He's saying that your neighbor isn't just the one that's easy for you to understand and agrees with you about everything. She isn't the one that you're most likely to invite to a dinner party and have small talk about all the things that you already hold in common. Your neighbor is also the person that you least understand and maybe who is actually your worst cultural enemy. And it shouldn't shock us to hear Jesus say this because Jesus also said things like this. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, and listen to this, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Okay, you should be asking the question at this point. I hope you are. So is Jesus just telling us to be as good as the good Samaritan, and if we're as good as the good Samaritan, then he'll love us? No. 
Jesus, I think, is trying to expose the fact that we never really consider that the last place that we might find ourselves in this story is the man lying on the side of the road. Because this is where Jesus finds every single one of us. And Jesus sets aside his own glory and he takes on flesh and he humbles himself and Jesus moved toward his enemy. And who is his enemy? Me and you. And he had compassion on us. That enemy is you and me. Jesus didn't come down to lay another law upon our back, a law that we could never keep. He came to rescue us from death. And he's trying to, get, he's trying to jar this man enough so that he might see it. How does he do that? Let's, let's think about how if we understand the story this way, it changes the way that we relate to God and we relate to our neighbor, and I'll, and I'll be done. Jesus asked the law expert this one last question. Who is the man who proved to be true neighbor to this dying man? And the guy answers correctly, well, I guess the one who showed mercy, right? And I think this is actually Jesus trying to draw him. He's trying to invite him to the grace that he really wants to offer him. Because the law expert, his relationship to God was like this. He wanted to lower the requirement of the law enough to meet it so that he might have eternal life based upon what he does. And that is a miserable way to live. And you know it. And I know it. He was an expert on trying to figure out how to make things doable. Some of us spend all of our college careers just kind of going, how do I do something that looks good to other people so other people will approve of me finally, right? And I'm orchestrating all of my life around the fact that I want people to go, you've finally done enough. It's the same mentality that this man has. Jesus shows him something that is far more radical and extraordinary. Inheriting, a li inheriting life through what you do is impossible. And that alone should be liberating for us to hear. You can't do it. It's impossible. We've all failed to love like this. So when he says, go and do likewise, that would have felt like death to this man. And that was the point. Because this man needed to die. His pride needed to be put to death so that he might actually receive the grace that Jesus is offering to him, Jesus who is his true neighbor. And here's the thing, maybe we need the same thing. Because we talk about grace, I talk about grace, but we live often like God loves us based on how well we do. He loves me, he loves me not. I had a great week, God, God's really proud of me. I had a horrible week. That's why I failed that test, because he's punishing me. Your sin deserves a lot worse than a failed test, okay? It really does. In our relationship with him, it, it can be a roller coaster ride as a result, and we always think he must be either mad or disappointed at us, and we don't live our lives out of love, but out of this fear and, sh and shame of not measuring up. And here's the thing, friends. Grace changes everything about how you relate to God. Because he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. It is finished. That's what I think of you. When I look at you, I look at you like I look at my son at his baptism. You are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Those who are in Christ are a new creation. They have died with Christ, and now they have risen with Christ, and you are dead to sin, and you are alive to God, and this is now how he sees 
his children. He has done everything for us, and he has given us the opposite of what we deserve. So here's the thing. Jesus does not love us based on what we do or don't do. He loves us despite what we have done and left undone. Jesus doesn't love us based on what we do or don't do. He loves us despite what we have done and what we have left undone. And the extraordinary thing is Jesus loves loves us so much that he came and he perfectly loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind at every minute with every molecule of his being. And he perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. And at the end of his life, he didn't ascend to a throne so everybody could celebrate this huge achievement, but he ascended a cross. And he took the full weight and the penalty of all the ways in which we walk by on the other side of the road, the ways in which we take advantage and objectify, the ways in which we don't love and the ways that we have been loved, that he is our true neighbor. And here's the thing, when we... Only when we have been set, only when we are set free to love, we're only set free to love once we understand how far Jesus has come to love us. And now that we are set free from trying to earn love, we are also set free to give away this extravagant love that he has given to us. So here's the thing. For those of us who've been shown mercy, I'll leave you with this question. How good is it that he has been gracious to you? And then you can ask yourself the question, now who is my neighbor? And you can ask it without this weight of guilt going, now I've got to answer it correctly so I can justify myself. Instead, I can, I can ask that question with excitement going, who do I now get to love? Because Jesus has come such a long way to love me. And I have been set free not to measure up by how well I love, but I might show the love that he has shown to me. And so who is your neighbor? Who's your neighbor at Clemson? Who's your neighbor in this place? Who, is, who are the people that are easy to pass by and he, easy to point your finger at and go, it's their fault anyway. Somebody else will take care of them later. Who are the ones that we would go, surely that's not my neighbor? In our churches, in our community, in our homes, we have a choice that we can see the needs of our neighbors and we can choose to move away and ignore and only associate with people who are like us at every level and say, these are my neighbors and and form a holy huddle and a little Christian tribe so that we remain pure on the inside. And I just want to remind you, if Jesus had done that, he would have never saved your butt, right? Or mine. Because he had to break out of that and he came down in order to find us so that he might love us. I'll end by saying this. I, a few years ago, I was like, man, I ha- I'm only around, like, the same type of people all the time. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a white Presbyterian, you know. It's like, and I, a lot of my friends are like that. And so somebody called me one day. I was like, hey, come preach for me at the, res- at, the, at the homeless shelter. And so I started doing that, and I started doing that, and I started doing that. And I, what I realized is that the people there understood this a lot better than I did. And I made a friend there, and his name is Thomas. And Thomas is a guy who, um, he's from Spartanburg, South Carolina. Um, He's about 50 years old, black man. And he was put in jail when he was about 18 years old for selling just a little bit of weed. And he spent over 25 years in jail for it. He was a victim of a system that is 
horribly broken. And here's the thing. He is the happiest man I think I have ever met. I, I am not kidding when I say that. I think he's the happiest man I've ever met. When he was in prison, Christians came to prison and preached the gospel to him. And he came to Christ. And he, every time I see this man, he passed away last year, but every time I, every time I saw Thomas, Thomas is in a wheelchair, he lost his legs to a disease, and he, you would see him, and he was loving people, and he was so happy. And here's the thing. I'm not telling you to go around and be fake happy. But when you, you know real joy when you see it, right? And I was like, this man knows what it's like to be loved by Jesus. And here's the thing. Sometimes when you reach out to love somebody else, what you find is they actually teach you something. And so I encourage you this week, look around. Who is my neighbor? And as you think about it, how far did Jesus come in order to love me? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and how merciful and kind and gracious he is to people like us, people who certainly don't deserve it. And I pray that we would stand in awe of that. And as we stand in awe of it, I pray that you would um, help us to move outward and to love our neighbor, even as we love ourselves, not to justify ourselves, not to earn your favor, but because we already have it. And we're astounded by that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.